came out with sets of numbers and I plotted them on pieces of paper. Radio waves, radio waves. She sees radio waves, radio waves. Welcome to this special holiday edition of the Astrophys Podcasts. My name is Brendan O'Brien and today is Tuesday the 15th of December 2020. We always include a community service announcement asking you to wash your hands regularly, wear a mask if you can't socially distance effectively and isolate as much as possible and as soon as you can to protect yourself and your community, get that COVID-19 vaccination as we work our way through this crisis. We also ask you to influence your local politicians with the message that we need to change our energy policies to move to renewable energy to mitigate climate change. So right now, we'll hear from Ian Astroblog Musgrave over in Adelaide, followed by his astronomical tangent. Hello, Ian. Hello, Brendan. Great to be speaking with you again, Ian. Can you tell us what's up in the sky for the next two months? Okay, lots of things are happening in the next two months. Most of the exciting things is happening in last half of December. January is a little bit unexciting. The period just before Christmas is going to have so many interesting things. So. Uh, Let's start off with the moon. The first quarter moon is December the 22nd. Full moon is on December the 30th. The last quarter is on January the 6th. The new moon is on January the 13th. And then we have the last quarter is on January the 21st. And finally, full moon again on January the 29th. So there's lots of moon action, but also there's lots of nice periods of darkness uh, when we can uh, have uh, plenty of time to enjoy the skies. Yep. But let's start with what's happening in the evening sky. By the time this goes out, we may have missed the peak of the Geminids, which occurs on the morning of the 14th. In Australia, the actual peak occurs during daytime, but the ramp up to the peak will have been quite nice. But nonetheless, for the next few days after the main peak, you'll still get decent meteor action. If you're up in the morning, Take a look and you should be seeing, should see some, uh, some nice meteors. The most impressive thing for the next couple of months is the meeting of uh, Jupiter and Saturn. So if you've been watching uh, Jupiter and Saturn in the evening sky as they've been heading towards the western sky, you've been noticing them edge closer and closer. And I gave you a heads up about this in the last Astrophys, but the first uh, first really exciting thing that's going to happen is the meeting of the thin crescent moon 
with Jupiter and Saturn. Now, Jupiter and Saturn are going to be a little bit under half a finger width apart, so they're going to be quite close, but still uh, still visible. And about three finger widths above Jupiter is going to be the th thin crescent moon. So all three of them are going to fit into a pair of binoculars fields quite nicely indeed. You won't be able to get all three of them into a telescope field, sadly, but if you feel like making a mosaic of the crescent moon and all the planets, go ahead and do so. But Jupiter and Saturn themselves will fit into a wide-angle field telescope eyepiece. Again, this is going to be uh, looking very nicely. However, it will be best seen about an hour after sunset. You can see Jupiter a bit earlier, but uh, to see Saturn properly, you need to see around, look around about an hour after sunset. And then you've only got about uh, an hour or so before the two up pair are too low and the moon are too low to look at effectively. But that's the prelude to the main event. And the main event is when Jupiter uh, and Saturn are close enough so that they are almost indistinguishable as separate objects. So again, from the 17th, as you watch the, the, the planets get closer and closer and closer, until on the 21st, which is also the, the night of the solstice, you'll see them almost on top of each other. It, for most people, it will be very hard to tell them apart. They're only 0.1 of a degree apart. And to give you an idea of how close that is, the moon is um, half a degree wide. So it's going to be a, a fraction of the distance, the width of the moon apart. Uh, again, as I said, for most people, you probably have difficulty uh, telling the two apart. And watching them come together and then the next few nights go apart will be uh, very, very interesting. Uh, but on the night that they're, uh, they're close together, you'll be able to fit both of them in uh, not just a wide field telescope eyepiece, but a high power telescope eyepiece. So you'll be able to see Jupiter and its bands, the moons of Jupiter, Saturn's and its rings, all in one image. Now, this is quite unusual. Jupiter and Saturn meet approximately every 20 years because Saturn takes 30 years to complete one orbit of the sun while Jupiter takes about 12. So about every 20 years they meet. Yep. They're, they're rarely this close. So uh, they'll be close again together in uh, 2040 and 2060, but there they'll be a finger width apart. So next time that they're this close, will be 15th of March, 2080. So uh, those of you uns who are still out there, you'll have another chance to see them this close again uh, in 2080, 60 years from now. I'm going to try and be around for 2080, but I'm not sure that I'll make it. <laughs> Good luck. Uh, the last time they were this close was uh, back in uh, back about 400 years ago in uh, 1693. So... This is not only a relatively rare occurrence, but an actually rare occurrence. So if you have any chance whatsoever to go and have a look, uh, go and have a look. Again, uh, the best time to look is an hour after sunset during nautical twilight. This will be a, a hard ask for telescopes generally because you'll need somewhere where with a very clear level horizon, say like uh, an ocean or a desert or something without lots of trees in the way. And you'll have to, have to have a telescope which can point very close to the horizon in order to pick them up. 
And, and then after the 21st, and we've all been excited and we're all sharing fantastic images of, of the, uh, the pair together, and of unless, of course, the curse of the clouds uh, falls upon us, we can watch them as they separate again. Now, after uh, this impressive meeting, Jupiter and Saturn uh, sink rapidly towards the horizon. And by early January, it's going to be very difficult to, to see them above the horizon an hour after sunset uh, when it's, it's, the sky is uh, dark enough to see both Jupiter and Saturn. Then on the 11th, Mercury rises up to, to uh, uh, meet them. But, uh, for example, on the 11th, Jupiter and Mercury are, are just a finger width apart, but they're only three finger widths above the horizon half an hour after sunset. So that's going to be a real challenge to pick up in, in, the, in the twilight. Uh, this is a, would be binocular only if you're very lucky to have a, a flat horizon like the ocean or the desert. And after this, Jupiter and Saturn are lost. Mercury climbs higher uh, and it's going to be quite nice to see uh, in the evening skies after about the 15th and it's uh, as highest above the horizon on the 24th. It does have a, a meeting with the moon on uh, January the 14th, but again, that's going to be quite low. It's only going to be a handstand from the western horizon about a half an hour after sunset. So again, you're going to be, need binoculars to see both the thin crescent moon and Mercury. But by the 24th, uh, Mercury should be readily seen a couple of hand spans above the horizon. So let's go back to Mars. Mars has been steadily fading, but it's still uh, bright and it's still the brightest object in the northern sky, northwestern sky at the moment. As uh, December and January wear on, Mars tends more towards the northwest. And again, it's because it's not near anything uh, interesting at the moment, it's very easy to tell apart. But uh, as January uh, wears on, you'll see it starting to come towards the Pleiades cluster. And I'll talk about the Pleiades a bit later on. And so if you watch uh, in late January, you'll see Mars edge closer and closer to the Pleiades. It won't be significantly close to the Pleiades until late February. But uh, at this time, this is going to be uh, quite low uh, in the twilight and so won't be quite as exciting as we might imagine. And that's it for the evening sky. Except for December the 23rd and 24th, uh, the waxing moon is uh, close to Mars. And then again, in January, we have... Mars is almost uh, underneath first quarter moon. And so that will look uh, rather nice. And that will occur on January the 21. So you'll have just after first quarter moon, Mars directly underneath. This will look very nice in binoculars. And again, if you want to make a mosaic, it's too far apart for to see both in uh, the uh, telescope. But if you want to make a mosaic of the moon and Mars underneath it, that will be a, a fun thing to do. Fantastic, Ian. Okay, let's turn now to the morning sky. Uh, Venus has been our constant companion for uh, most of this year in the morning, but it's been sinking lower and lower towards the horizon. And when this podcast will be released, 
Venus will be uh, hand spanned from the horizon at nautical twilight. That's 60 minutes before sunrise. And so if you've got lots of trees or hills about, it can be a bit difficult to see. Although because it's quite bright, it's readily visible deep into the twilight. And over uh, the rest of December and January, it continues to sink towards the horizon. On January 12, Venus and the thin crescent moon are a finger apart, width apart. Uh, one and a half hand spans from the horizon half an hour before sunrise. But you will need a clear level horizon for this one. And uh, you may in fact need to use Venus to find the moon. Again, because the, the thin crescent moon is uh, relatively dim, uh, bright Venus is your signpost to the moon in binoculars. And once this event is over, Venus sinks further and further towards the horizon. And by uh, the end of January, it's becoming really hard to see and it will vanish mid-February. So those are the planets. So let's turn to the stars. Being Christmas break for, uh, for many people, uh, many of us are going to go uh, camping or go places where the sky, sky is dark. So this is an excellent time to look at the stars. Now, for us in the southern sky, we have very limited periods of darkness. But if you're willing to stay up till 10 o'clock at night, you'll be greatly rewarded, especially if you're camping with some fantastic views. If you're in the uh, northern hemisphere, of course, because it's winter time for you, you have quite long, dark skies and there's plenty for you to see there. Sadly, if you're in the northern hemisphere, I'm now going to talk about the Magellanic Clouds, which uh, you won't be able to see. Uh, the Magellanic Clouds are the companion galaxies to the Milky Way. And the Large Magellanic Cloud is now in an excellent viewing position from astronomical twilight. That's an hour and a half after sunset when full dark has occurred. And the Large Magellanic Cloud and the Tarantula Nebula are fantastic objects to observe. If you are looking due south after astronomical twilight in a dark sky location, you're going to see what looks like two wispy clouds. But unlike actual clouds, uh, ones that uh, plague us when they move over the sky and, and blot out our views, uh, they don't move. So these are the Magellanic Clouds. The largest of these, uh, these uh, wispy clouds to the left of due south is the Large Magellanic Cloud. Now, the Large Magellanic Cloud lies at an approximate distance of uh, 163,000 light years from us, a mere snip away. And uh, it's not obvious if you're looking with your related eye, but if you take some long exposures, you'll see that the large Magellanic Cloud has a prominent bar in its central region, indicating this probably was a barred spiral galaxy at some stage before uh, the Milky Way dragged its, its orbit and pulled stars and gas from it and generally distorted its structure, just like it did with the small Magellanic Cloud. Now, if you're uh, a bit uncertain uh, which of the wispy things is the large Magellanic Cloud, Find the two brightest stars in the sky, Sirius and Canopus. If you draw a straight line through Sirius and Canopus and continue it on towards south, it'll pierce the heart of the large Magellanic Cloud. Now, within this uh, hazy disk or rectangle of the, the large Magellanic Cloud, you'll see what looks to be a fuzzy star. Now, this is the Tarantula Nebula. Now, while it's not much to look at to the unaided eye, you know, fuzzy star and all, and it's a, a fuzzy patch of binoculars, but it's obvious it's something different about it. 
It's not, if you uh, remember the small Magellanic Cloud from our previous podcast, the small Magellanic Cloud is this compact, fuzzy ball like glowing cotton wool. This is different. This is a wide ranging structured glow. And what it is, it's a most active star forming region in approximately 30 odd galaxies, including the Milky Way. So it's, 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 People in the, the uh, Northern Hemisphere might have the Andromeda galaxy to look at, but we've got not only two large dwarf galaxies, a fantastic globular cluster, we've also got the most active star-forming region anywhere close by. So if you're looking at it in a telescope, you can see the spidery appearance for which it's named. You've got a dozen or so incredibly hot, massive stars at the centre of all these long triangles of hot gas. Why they called it the Tarantula Nebula rather than the Octopus Nebula, I don't know, because to me it looks more like a crazy octopus than a spider. Yeah. But that's not all. If you look a little bit to the south of the Tarantula Nebula, even in binoculars, you'll see all these fantastic little open clusters and nebula, and there's even a small globular cluster in there. And if you turn a telescope, even a small telescope onto it, you can see these fantastic little jewel boxes scattered throughout the Magellanic Cloud. And of course, if you have a more grunty telescope, you'll see it in even more fantastic detail. So even with a pair of binoculars, you can spend quite a while just looking at the Magellanic Cloud and its, its nebula itself. Very good. But for those of you in the Northern Hemisphere and both the Southern Hemisphere, you've got Orion the Hunter striding the sky. It's a very distinctive belt of stars, which we in the Southern Hemisphere call quite romantically the Swordsman. <laughs> and if you're, even if you're looking with the unaided eye, you can see the nebulosity around the stars form the sword in the belt of Orion or the handle of the saucepan if you're in Australia. And with binoculars, this nebulosity is really clear and even a small telescope will show up the Great Nebula in Orion very easily. Just to the north of that is the distinct V-shape of Taurus the Bull. Uh, again, a large open cluster called the Hyades with the bright red Aldebaran forming the eye of the bull. And to the north again is the beautiful Pleiades cluster. This is also called the Seven Sisters. So as I exercise this holiday season, why not try counting the number of stars you can see? Do you see seven? Do you see fewer? Do you see more? Now, once you've done that, then turn to, for those of you in the Southern Hemisphere, then turn to the Southern Sky, find the Southern Cross, and about two hand spans above the Southern Cross, you'll see a bright star, this is Theta Carina, surrounded by a patch of little stars. And through binoculars or a telescope, you'll see this. Again, it's an A-shaped formation of stars. How many of those can you count with the unaided eye alone? Compare that to how many stars you can count with the Pleiades. This will give you an idea of how good your eyesight is and what the ancients thought they saw when they named the Pleiades the Seven Sisters. So there's lots to see and lots to do. So, again, I'll say that the Christmas holiday season will be a fantastic time to explore our skies, 
whether you're in the northern or the southern hemisphere. Uh, and so take this time to get out, go up, go out, have a look, and you know, try doing some some more exploration than just going, oh look, up the stars, beautiful. Try and do things like count the count the number of stars in the Pleiades, and that will give you a feeling for how good your eyesight is, but also you might want to try and sketch the stars in the Pleiades. So you can start honing your observational skills and uh, and get a bit deeper into understanding our sky. Fantastic, Ian. I'll do all of that. Now, do you have a tangent for us for this special episode? I do indeed. Now, of course, the near merging of Jupiter and Saturn on the solstice, the obvious tangent would be musing on the star of Bethlehem. So what I'm going to talk about is cartoon avatars for spacecraft. Now, you may be aware that Hayabusa 2 landed in the Australian outback on December the 5th. This was the first successful return of asteroidal material from an asteroid, uh, representing an incredible advance, getting to uh, uh, an asteroid, orbiting it, taking samples and returning them. It was a fantastic feat. But do you remember Hayabusa 1? I hope so. Now, Hayabusa 1 was the, the, the first attempt on the asteroid Itakawa, as opposed to Hayabusa 2, which was at Rugu. And Hayabusa 1 had a little bit more of a challenge. It sampling probe uh, had uh, significant issues. It had explosion of its fuel lines. It, it limped back slowly to Earth and then dropped off its sample capsule after a marathon effort which involved shooting around a number of, of different astronomical objects in order to get it back into Earth orbit. So you may not be aware that Hayabusa 2 had a cartoon avatar. And it had lots of cartoon avatars. It had avatars for the spacecraft itself. It had avatars for the mascot uh, rovers. But nobody remembers them because Hayabusa 2 worked so well. It got there, it took its sample, it came back. But we remember Hayabusa uh, 1 because it struggled. And as it came back to Earth, there were any number of cartoon avatars of Hayabusa 1, typically featuring Japanese schoolgirls. Why you would want to, uh, some quite disturbing, why you would want to feature a Japanese schoolgirl plunging to a fiery death in the atmosphere as an avatar of a spacecraft. I'm not entirely certain, but it was Japan. But it's an aspect of uh, how we see spacecraft. Now, I'm sure all of us have fond memories of, an, of a number of different spacecraft. Spirit, Opportunity, um, the, uh, the uh, Rosetta and Philae, but only a few of them have we identified with, their, with have had cartoon avatars, which we have identified with. Now, neither Spirit nor Opportunity had uh, official cartoon avatars, but both Spirit and Opportunity were immortalised by the artist XKCD. And if there's one thing you can remember about Spirit, it's the uh, cartoon that XKCD made of the Spirit's 
uh, last days, which was the little rover struggling across the landscape of Mars, getting bogged, cloning home to the world, and then uh, saying, did I do a good job? Do I get to come home? And I, I, that, that, that cartoon still strikes me. The, the cartoon for, for Opportunity was about how Opportunity kept on going and going. Uh, and his, his um, cartoon ends with uh, 20, 2450, Terraform Mars, everything the light touches ours, our kingdom. What's that dark area? That's Opportunity's half of the planet. You must never go there. So we, we, we anthropomorphize spacecraft, but when we have a real emotional connection to these spacecraft, we immortalize them through cartoons. And same goes for Rosetta and Philae. Rosetta and Philae had a, official a cartoon avatars, which we followed um, probably more than the uh, actual spacecraft itself. You can even find videos of them on on YouTube, where where uh, Philae was a shown with a minus hat and pick, um, and the, the the final sequence where uh, where Philae goes to sleep and tucks itself in at the end is is uh, quite moving, possibly not as moving as the uh, final words of spirit, but but it, 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 it's a, a, a truly moving uh, experience. And I think when we connect with spacecraft, we connect in a number of ways. And I think one of the ways that, that we really connect with these and where we, we pull out cartoon avatars to connect with us uh, is when the spacecraft has been seen to struggle. Spirit opportunity, they lasted a long time. They kept on going against uh, all odds. And so we had this real connection with them, which was uh, immortalized in cartoons. Hayabusa 1, well, again, was a struggle. Uh, uh, exploding fuel lines, slipping back through, through planetary encounters to finally deliver a few grains of asteroidal material. So everyone's getting excited about all the material that Hayabusa has returned, Hayabusa 2 has returned. But the first one was really Hayabusa 1. It was only a couple of grains, but that was the first one. And almost everyone remembers the cartoons of, of Hayabusa falling to Earth. Nobody remembers the cartoon avatars of, of Hayabusa 2. Even though Hayabusa 2, was, yeah, Hayabusa 2 was widely successful, we were all focused on it returning, but it was successful. And we don't have that same, the same connection to, to Hayabusa and its uh, its happy its happy little um, uh, avatars, whereas the battered anime schoolgirl of Hayabusa One has that much deeper connection with us. And did you know Beppy Colombo has a cartoon avatar? Oh, great! Yeah, uh, but no one cares about Beppy Colombo's cartoon avatar. Philae and Rosetta, yes, the 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 the, the uh, the struggles of Philae, the final landing of Rosetta. Almost everyone knows those cartoons. Whereas Beppe Colombo, I only just discovered it going, that's really silly. 
You know, why, why, why would you even bother? But again, it, it shows how we connect with space. And people have often said that, you know, robots in space, the humanised space, we really need people, boots out there. But we can see from Philae, Hayabusa, Opportunity and Spirit, we can connect with the robots. Again, struggle appears to be part of it. And so we're far more connected with those robots that have had to do so much more work. Whereas, for example, while everybody was celebrating the uh, return of the samples from Hayabusa 2, virtually no one in the West was paying attention to the uh, sample return from Chang'e 5. Uh, Chang'e has taken samples from the moon, launched them into space, and we had the first time where you had a robot uh, docking system taking the samples from the moon into the orbital module. And that was a list of so many firsts, but we didn't pay a lot of attention to it. I have also happened to be able to find cartoon avatars uh, about that. Uh, people are very excited. I think that there's a lot of excitement in, in China and Asia generally about Chang'e 5, but they haven't translated that into the application that we did for Hayabusa or um, Philae and Spirit and Opportunity. And I think this is, again, what it comes into. Uh, the Chang'e 5, it did this amazing thing. It did this amazing thing perfectly. So we don't have that same sort of connection as we have with the struggling Hayabusa 1, which finally gets home after all this effort. And so successful robots, you go, yeah, great robot. Uh, successful robots that have had to struggle against all odds. And I, of course, when we say success, struggle against all odds, there's a lots of uh, human engineers making sure everything's, uh, that, that uh, things are going right. Those connect with us. And so uh, I think the take home message for uh, this is that as we look to the skies at Christmas, out there, there's so many robots. Those robots are not just making pretty pictures for us, but they're doing uh, amazing exploration and we're, it's, they're bringing us a link to space. So we are now having a bigger connection with space because of these, uh, these robots. Percy, uh, Perseverance will be landing on Mars in a, in a, a not uh, uh, too distant future. So what cartoons will be drawn of Perseverance? Exactly. Exactly. So I'm going to leave you on, on with that idea. And of course, the Curiosities cartoons were generally about its ability to shoot things with lasers. But we haven't again had the same sort of connection with Curiosity as we had with Opportunity and uh, Spirit. So how are we going to see Percy? Is its anthropomorphized name going to give us a bigger connection? And again, this is my final word. Reflect on what sorts of cartoons you would imagine from Percy. Exactly. Okay. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Ian Astroblog Musgrave, for all your fabulous Skywatch episodes this year. You're certainly making observing the skies a wondrous and understandable endeavour. And. While we're handing out cheers, let's raise our glasses to 
all the engineers and scientists and technicians from NASA, from JPL, from Japan, from China, from the European Space Agency, and especially from Australia's new space agency and our clever friends up at Tidbinbilla, who bring in and distribute the signals from all those space robots and make the science available so we can understand our world and our universe better. Indeed. Again, I will echo your, uh, your thoughts and send out my best wishes to all those involved in space and, and uh, who, who uh, spirits are riding with robots deep into the hearts of our solar system. Very good. Well, thanks, Ian. I'm really looking forward to 2021. I'm hoping that it's a, um, perhaps a, a finer year than 2020. Let's hope so. Let's hope so. Well, think about this this way. Um, in 2021, there will be a dragonfly on Mars. Exactly. Thanks, Ian. No worries. It was a pleasure to be involved. Thank you very much again. Good night, mate. Bye. Good night, mate. Bye. And remember, Astrophys is free and unsponsored, and we're very happy to recommend that you can always get the latest and best space news from Rami Mandal at spaceaustralia.com. And another great astro podcast is The Scientists with Kirsten Banks and Dr. Ankel Lopez-Sanchez. And for observers and astrophotographers, always check out Dr. Ian Musgrave's astroblogger website. So have a fabulous holiday break, everyone, and I'm really looking forward to 2021. We'll be back. Radio Wave!